welcome back to the Pops Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This week is a little bit extra special for us. Aji has been leading us through James for the last three years, line by line, word by word, and we've loved every minute of it. These last three years have been so eye-opening, enlightening, and really we've learned a ton. And we're excited next that Aji will be moving on to Colossians. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this final episode in the chapter of James. Have you ever wondered and asked yourself, am I good enough? How many people here have ever asked themselves at some point in your life, you've asked yourself, am I good enough? We've all, you know, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we've all. Am I good enough? Can God use me? We have all wondered and asked ourselves this question at some point in our lives. Why? Because we don't see ourselves as good enough. We begin to compare ourselves to our pastor, a deacon, a friend, an evangelist we see on TV. Because we are all too familiar with our frailties, weaknesses, failures our past, and all the blunders we've done in our life. There is a photogenic mind that we recollect all those things and we say, you know what, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if God will ever use me. But tonight, I bring you the good news. I'm going to have you to cheer up because the, the affirmative answer is, yes, God can use you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what your past looks like, God can use you. And you might feel, you know what, time is running out. I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm 80, I'm 90. It's never too late with God. God can use you. And I believe God wants to use you. But you need to begin to change your mind. Because it's all according to your faith. You need to see yourself in a new different light as God sees you. Not as you see yourself. Of all the Old Testament prophets... Elijah was certainly celebrated as one of the greatest to ever live, highly revered. But in James chapter 5, verse 17, James mentioned Elijah as an example of how God could use a person with many failures, many frailties, many blunders. Also an example of what our prayers can produce, irrespective of our past. Let's look at James 5, 17 to 18. James 5, 17 to 18. And it reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it will not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. That was the New King James Version. In the NIV, it reads, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it will not rain, and it did not rain on land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So what does it mean when the Bible says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours? What does that mean? It means Elijah shared the same frailties, human frailties, struggles, failures, and weaknesses like us. We usually talk about all these prophets, and we think, oh, my God, if I could just have the anointing Elijah has, can you imagine how God could use me? But you're going to find out shortly that when you take a close look at the life of Elijah, even though he has great enthusiasm and zeal for God, he also had bouts with fear and depression. It is important to see his humanity, which is why James was pointing to it, because it helps us understand that God can really use anyone to do great and mighty things. And I come to you tonight that God wants to use you at another level, a higher level than you've ever been used before. 
But the first thing is you need to take a different picture. You need to put a new picture here and see yourself as God sees you. Don't look at yourself through the lenses of your past, of what someone has said, maybe an ex-wife, what a teacher has said in high school, what your dad might have told you, what your mom has told you, what someone might have told you, that you are no good, you're stupid, you're up to, you can't do anything right. And those words have shackled you and kept you unable to do great things for God. While God is saying, are you ready? I'm ready to use you. You're saying, no, God, no, use that guy across the street. He reads his Bible more than I do. He goes to church more than I do. So let's take a closer look at Elijah's life. And I'm going to bring four different things to you. I don't know if you know this about Elijah, but I'm going to reveal the life of Elijah to you tonight and let you know he was not a perfect man. But nevertheless, God used him. And when he prayed, his prayer God answered. Let's look at 1 King 19, 1 to 3. 1 Kings 19, 1-3 in the NIV version. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. So what had Elijah done? Elijah, in the previous days, had assassinated 400 Baal prophets. He had killed 400. He cornered them in a temple. He tricked them into that temple, and they got killed. So Ahab was telling Jezebel, about what Elijah just did. Everything had done and how he had killed all the prophets, which is the Baal prophets, with the sword. So Jezebel, and Jezebel was the queen. Ahab was the king at the time. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So Elijah was a fearful, emotional man and subjected to intimidation. Are you fear-based? Do does your fear shackle you? Does it, is this something that you think of often? You're like scared. What could happen? This could go wrong. Very highly analytical, pessimistic. And as a result, you don't do anything. Elijah could relate with you. Elijah became highly emotional and afraid. After receiving Jezebel's threat, he got his mind off of God's promises of protection and he yielded to fear and intimidation. Has the enemy ever intimidated you? Has he brought someone in your life that threatens you and you're afraid of taking the next step because you never know what may happen? So as a result, you retreat and you say, I'm not going to do it. I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen to my children. I don't know what's going to happen to my business. I don't know what's going to happen to my job. I don't know what's going to happen to my reputation and my integrity. Elijah was a fearful, emotional man and subject to intimidation. Let's look at another thing about Elijah. Let's go to 1 Kings 19, verses 4 to 5. And I believe here tonight there are some people struggling with depression and anxiety. The Lord wants to heal you of it. The Lord is saying anxiety and depression has held you down and is causing you not to be able to fulfill your call and your destiny. And the Lord said he wants to heal you of that tonight. The Lord is saying you are capable of doing more, but you felt you can't do any more because you are afraid. Let's look at Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 4-5. While he himself went a day's journey. So now, Elijah got the threat from Jezebel, and he is scared, and he took off, started running. There was a man that was filled with the Spirit of God and killed 400 Baal prophets. Now he is scared, and now he took off, started running. While he himself went a day's journey, 24 hours, he started running. 
running from a woman into the wilderness. And I want you to pay attention to the language God is using here. Wilderness. What does wilderness mean? Wilderness is a place of testing, a place of self-doubt, a place of loneliness, a place of isolation, a place of depression. Have you been in a wilderness lately? Have you been in a wilderness? Have you been miserable? Have you felt isolated? Have you felt nobody's reaching out to me? I'm just by myself. What am I living for? Have you begun to self-doubt? Elijah came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah got a bad attitude, succumbed to depression, and became suicidal. How many people here have become suicidal? That you are so depressed, you're like, what's the point of living? Just take me out, Lord. I'm ready to come home. Just eliminate me right now. I'm tired. I'm fed up. I want to die. That is where Elijah was. He started looking at the negative. He got depressed. He asked God to kill him. All he could see was the negative side of life. He no longer was thinking of what God did a few days earlier when the bad, evil Baal prophets were eliminated. So we've learned two things about Elijah. Elijah was fearful, highly emotional, subjected to intimidation. Elijah had a bad attitude, succumbed to depression, and became suicidal. What else? Let me tell you one thing more about Elijah. First King 19, 9 to 10. There he went into a cave. Now I want you to think about this. He was first of all in a wilderness. Now he's in a cave. The Bible is trying to show us the mental state of Elijah. He was formerly in the wilderness, a place of wandering, a place of loneliness, a place of isolation, a place of depression, a suicidal spot. Now he went deeper. Things got worse. From fry pan to fire, now he went into a cave. The doctors could not help. Nobody could help. The psychotherapist, the medical doctor, the pastor could not help. Basically, everybody has given up and said, just go home. Go home and die. First King 19, 9-10 said, There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied. I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites... I rejected your covenant, turned down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. That is Elijah's view of the world. But was he telling the truth? Let's find out. Look at 1 Kings 18 to 13. 1 Kings 18 to 13, here is Obadiah speaking to Elijah shortly before this episode happened. Obadiah told Elijah, As no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophet, I hid 100 of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. Elijah had that information. But he told the Lord, he said, I am the only one left. Everybody else has died. So what does that tell us about Elijah? Elijah, not only was he fearful, not only did he have a bad attitude, not only was he subject to intimidation, not only was he suicidal, Elijah was also a liar. He knew he was not the only one left. Obadiah told him a few weeks earlier, there were a hundred, within a hundred prophets, you are not the only one left. But he told the Lord, I'm the only one left. He was also a liar. And later, God even told him, God said, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal in 1 Kings 19 to 18. God told him, hey, you're not the only one left. But he told that lie because he was desperate. He was fearful, intimidated, depressed, 
suicidal, paranoid, running. He felt the wilderness was not safe enough. Now let me go into the cave and hide. It became jittery. And as if that is not enough. How many people here could relate with Elijah? I can. I'll raise my hand. I'm sure all of us could relate to Elijah. Absolutely. But we all like to think, you know what? I have to save my reputation, you know. I go to church Sunday. I go to midweek service. I'm a prayer partner. I'm a deacon in my church. I wear the right clothes. I put up the right smile. I give my offering. We put up the good picture. But could there be things underneath that you don't want people to know about you? And those things have locked you up and actually kept going from advancing you to the next place that is calling you to. All you could think about is the failures, the blunders, the divorce, the bankruptcy, the sickness, the layoffs, the downsizing, the firing, the business that didn't work out, the last lawsuit you went through. And you're saying, you know what? I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm just going to breathe, sleep, and eat. But not only that, look at 1 King 19, 15 to 17. 1 King 19, 15 to 17. The Lord said to Elijah, go back the way you came and go to this desert of Damascus. When you get there, number one, anoint Azel, king of over Aram. Also, number two, anoint Jehu, son of Nephshi, king, king over Israel. And number three, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Azel. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. So God gave Elijah three assignments. That was his calling. Three things to do. Anoint Azel, anoint Jehu, anoint Elisha. How many people know how many of these three assignments Elijah completed? One. One of the three. Elijah was so depressed. All he was looking for someone that will replace him because he's tired of being the prophet. He's tired. The only one he did, he anointed Elisha. He said, let me just get my backup plan going right now, man. Let me get someone else to back me up, and I'm out of here. And he went. He anointed Elisha, son of Shaphat, but he never anointed Jehu. He never anointed Israel. Two-thirds of his calling, he blatantly disobeyed God. Now, do you get a picture now? You get a picture of who Elijah is? You see his humanity. Yet, with all these frailties, with all the fear, the lie, the depression, the suicidal tendency, the disobedience to the call of God upon his life, God answered his prayer. Look at what James 5, 17, 8 to 18 says in New Living Translation. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain should will fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crop. You know what? We have a merciful God. We have a merciful God. And he loves you. He loves you. He's aware of your wrongdoings. He aware, he's aware of your past. But he has not yet given up on you yet. Because while, we were, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Now that you are saved, how much more does he want to give you? Brothers, we have to keep in mind that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let's say that together. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not about all I have done. It's all about what Christ has done. So when you come to God, when you look at your life, do not base your life on your own merits or lack of it. Base your life and your prayer 
on your righteousness which is based on Christ. Because Christ has declared you right before God. You are righteous before God. And you need to remind yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For God made Jesus Christ who knew no sin to become sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Come to God in the name of Jesus Christ through the blood that was shed on Calvary. This is the basis of how we come to God. And this is the basis on which we are used and we go from glory to glory. Look at Romans 3.22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. And I put in parenthesis, not earned. You see, we are used to working for a paycheck. We are used to pleasing our boss. So let me just do more. It's do, 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 go, 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 higher and higher. Ah, you don't want me to jump. But the Bible says your works are like filthy rags before God. You can, God will never do anything for you based on, oh my God, do you see what he has done? Oh my God, there's nobody that has ever done that. He's done more than Mother Teresa and, and uh, Billy Graham combined. You will never get God's attention based on your merits. So stop trying to harm it. Surrender your life to God. Submit your plans to him and say, Father God, I thank you. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Even though your wife just chewed you out an hour before and told you how stinky and how nasty and how stingy you are. You tell the Lord, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Because the enemy wants you to think about what you've done. Because he wants to hold you captive and hold you in the place you've always been. So no progress. He wants you to feel bad, feel bad for yourself. But you got to say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am the righteousness. My righteousness is not based on what I've done. I didn't come to Christ based on what I've done. I will not maintain my stand with God based on what I do. My righteousness is based on what Christ has done. And Christ has imputed his righteousness to me. And it's on that merit do I come before the throne of grace to receive mercy for my failures and help in time of need. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So there are a few things we need to keep in mind. Number one, God does not call the qualified he qualifies the called. I'm going to say that again. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.5, New Living Translation. It is not that we think we are qualified. This is Paul speaking. And you know who Paul is. Highly trained. He said, it is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Let's say that together. My qualification comes from God. You don't have to be perfect and flawless. God calls the man who is devoted to him. He then equips that man for the task ahead. You see, all you need to do is fall in love with Jesus Christ and keep that relationship. And if you know you've done something wrong, confess your sins before God. Look at 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not 50%, not 25%, all unrighteousness. Let me give you a quick rundown of the people God used in the Bible, just to kind of make you feel a little bit better. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David was a murderer and had an affair. Abraham was too old. Lot slept with his daughters, Noah got drunk, Jonah ran from God, Paul was a murderer, Gideon was insecure, Thomas was a doubter, Moses stuttered. 
So what's your problem? <laughs> what's your problem? What's your concern? What are you going to say? I'm divorced. I'm addicted. I filed for bankruptcy. I'm an alcoholic. I was a drug dealer. I prostituted. Repent. Repent and begin to serve. Don't wait until you get a good feeling about yourself because that feeling might never come. Confess your sin before God and begin to serve. What has happened is in the past. You know what God said in Psalm 103, 12? He said, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He has removed your sin. If God has removed your sin and he no longer thinks about what you've done, why should you succumb to the enemy's, enemy's plan and attack to keep bringing back your past? God has a plan for you. He said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plan to prosper you and not to harm you. Plan to give you a future filled with hope. You are not done yet. The fact that you are living means God still has plans for you. You might say, I've done a lot. Oh, I'm tired. But God said, I have plans. I have plans for you. You don't even have an idea for how I want to use you next. And that's why if you look at James 5.19, James 5.19, it says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, I won't convert him. And New King James Version says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back. When you look at that word convert, it means a carnal believer. A carnal believer. And what James is trying to say here is this. Elijah was a carnal believer. There are going to be times in your life you stray from the truth. Be it in whichever way you do it. What James is trying to tell us here is that we have a responsibility to those that are straying from the truth. Have you ever gone to church and you know a brother that comes to church regularly, all of a sudden he stops coming. He no longer shows up because he's been caught in condemnation. He's been bombarded with depression because of something that just happened. What James was telling us is this. Go and seek out that brother, exhort him, encourage him, be sensitive and compassionate to him. If you notice any Elijahs, because there are many of them in our churches, when you see people at church, there are things they are struggling with. James is telling us, go out of your way and seek them out. Give them a call. Call them. Ask them how to go to coffee. Restore them. Look at Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, and he's talking about a believer, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Restore them. That is our obligation as a brother in Christ. Don't just only greet people when you see them. Greet them when you don't see them. Find out. You know what? I haven't seen brother now for two weeks. He hasn't shown up at Pops. I haven't seen him on the basketball court. Find their number. Seek them out. Call them. Take them out for lunch. Find out what's going on in their life and encourage them. Because there are a lot of us, we are still playing the Christian game. We, we are a zombie. We are going through the motion, but we've given up. We are saying, God cannot use me anymore. I've just had it. I've, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm struggling with anxiety. But God is not yet done with you, and you are good enough. God is not done with you. You are good enough, okay? Your past might be rotten, but God has a glorious future ahead of you, all right? Forget the past and move on with God because he's ready and waiting on you. The last verse of James chapter 5. The last verse in the book of James. 
James 5.20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So there are two groups that James is talking about here. In James 5.19, he's talking about a convert. He's talking about a carnal believer. But in James 5.20, he's talking about a sinner, someone that doesn't know Christ, period. So James is saying, hey, while you are seeking and trying to restore the brother that has heard, that has gone off track, a believer, a carnal believer, also do not forget a brother that do not know Christ, period. Unbeliever. Also reach out to them because you will save the soul from death, hell, and cover a multitude of sin. So as we begin to wrap up this message tonight, let's look at Matthew 6, 1 to 13. So how do we respond when we are bombarded, bombarded with our past? How do we respond when people around us, they know our past and you are rejected? Or even you yourself, you self-reject yourself because all you could think about is what you've just done, what has happened in the past. How did our Lord Jesus Christ, what did he encourage us to do? And what did Elijah do? Because he had a, a very strong impression of what happened in the past. Let's look at this passage real quick. Matthew 6, 1 to 13. How do we respond to rejection? How do we respond to, to depression, the past, suicidal tendencies, and things that bothers us? Let's read this. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? They scoffed. They mocked. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. So we are seeing Jesus' humanity through his rejection in his hometown. Rejection by others. Very tough to handle. It can lead you to believe, hey, I'm not good enough. Maybe those people are right. Maybe, you know what, I don't have enough education. I grew up on the other side of town. I don't have the best reputation in town. I've done a few things that are questionable. Our Lord was going through the same thing. He went to his hometown. It was mocked. People that lived and grew up with him were deeply offended, and they refused to believe him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own town and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirit. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick. No food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you, have, until you leave town. If any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet. As you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their faith. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God, and they cast out many demons and healed many sick, anointing them with horror. So how do we respond to criticism? How do we respond to rejection? How do we respond when we feel we are not good enough? When those thoughts come and plague us, what did Jesus advise? Jesus said in verse 11 of that passage, if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake this dust off your feet and keep moving. 
Shake off the past. Shake off what people have said about you. Don't wait for the feelings. Jesus was condemned. He was mocked. He was put down. But what did he do? What did he do? Look at verse 6. Jesus went from village to village. He moved on. You see, your action will cancel your feeling. You cannot let your feelings imprison you. If you are a person that's subjected to emotional tides, up and down, you will not do a whole lot for God. There are times you just need to dress up, get in your car, and go. Next. That's what our Lord did. He could have said, you know what? Oh, Father, I don't know if I'm up to this task. Look at even my family. They are rejecting me. They are mocking me. They are not believing in me. But Jesus went on from village to village. So it shows us that criticism, rejections, feelings of not being good enough, of not being good enough is just like a layer of dust on our clothing. We may not have the power to control what other people say, think, or do to us, but we do have the power to shake it off. Shake it off. Shake it off. Brush it off. Dress up. Get your keys. Freshen up. And step out. Step out. That is the way you defeat the enemy. Come out from the cave. Walk out of the wilderness. Keep on moving forward. So the other side of the coin is this. We also have to be careful judging people of what we know about them. Don't say, you know what? That's the brother that, uh, you know what? Ten years ago, do you know he robbed the bank? Yeah, we can't hire him. Mm -mm. He can't be our friend. You know, five years ago, he divorced my sister. He's a bad dude, man. We don't want to play basketball with him. Just let's exclude him. Don't judge people by their past. And we do that a lot in the church. We start to judge people. He can't do that. Look at him. If you know what he did, I won't give him that opportunity. You see, if God did that to us, none of us will do anything for God. So we have to have the mind of Christ to forgive people and look beyond their past and give them a fresh start. That is what being a Christian is. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.16. This is Paul speaking again. Paul said, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How different we know him now. Paul said, I stopped. I don't judge people by whether they have a PhD, whether they drive in, in, a, in this limousine, and this other guy rode a bike. We don't judge people from a human standpoint. And I like the way the Passion Translation put it. The Passion Translation says, so from now on, we refuse to evaluate people merely by their outward appearances. For that's how we once viewed the anointed one. But no longer do we see him with limited human insight. Take off the limited human insight. Take off the lenses of seeing people by their race, by the way they talk. Did they have a New York accent or did they have a Southern accent? Are they short? Are they fat? Are they tall? Are they good looking? Are they bad looking? Are they pudgy? Are this, this, this or that? Go on the internet. And today, everybody does that. They meet you. Before you know it, they've gone on Google. Google your name because they want to know all about your past. What's up with that? What's up with that? Everybody's looking for some rotten. Do you know what I found out about him? Ooh, I look online. You should see what I found about him. Let me tell you what I found. I'll tell you what. You don't want to talk to this guy again. That is for people in the world, not for us. We forgive people. We overlook their past because God overlooked your past. And he put all your blames, all your blunders, all your wrongdoings, put it on his only beloved son, Jesus Christ. He died for you. So you, be, you could be clean before God. He gave you his righteousness, his perfection. He gave it to you freely. And now we forget all that. And we start judging our brothers and our sisters. Terrible. 
terrible. So what is the conclusion as we wrap up the book of James? In spite of his vacillating faith, his rejection by the government of the day, Elijah shook off the temptation of not being good enough. When he went to pray for it to rain again, the thought came to his mind, God is not going to answer you. Look at all the crap you did. God is not going to listen to you. But he went on and prayed. Elijah shook up the temptation of not being good enough. He prayed and God answered. You say some wild prayer, something big. Ask God for something big. Quit thinking about your past. Use your faith and ask for something big and see what the Lord will do. So if it it seems like one day you are spiritually on top of a mountain and the next day you are in a valley, you are in a wilderness, You are in a cave with depression, suicidal tendency. Just remember, that is the story of Elijah's life. And if God could use Elijah, he can certainly use you too. God wants to use you. He has great plan. In 2023, that is why he brought you here tonight. It's no coincidence you are here tonight. He wants you to have this message. And I will encourage you to take the scripture and go look it up at home. And begin to change your mind about who you are in Christ. Find out who you are in Christ. Don't let the enemy shackle you and imprison you with your past and limit your forward progress. So besides the fact that tonight was the last night that we'll be spending in James, this session was a little bit near and dear to my heart personally. And the reason is, is that I struggle with anxiety and depression. God has been faithful to me. He's helped me through it. He's helped me be able to work through it faster, get out of it quicker. Most importantly, he's helped me be able to help others. Over the years, I've had several guys in our POPs community and several outside of our POPs community that have reached out to me just to talk. And if you're out there and you're listening to this and you struggle with anxiety or depression, you may not have anybody to talk to that understands what you're going through. So that night during Pops, I laid this out for everybody and I wanna lay it out here for you. If you're struggling with anxiety or depression and you don't feel like you have anyone to talk to, please reach out to me. You can reach me on Big C Ministries on Facebook. We respond to all messages and that will come directly to me. The last thing that we would want is anyone out there to be struggling and not have an outlet to express themselves and how they're feeling. So we hope you enjoyed tonight's episode, and we hope you enjoyed the last of the chapter of James. We love you all. See you next time.